Welcome to our Good Friday service here at First Calling Christian Church. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We are actually in the middle of a uh, seven-year series here at FCQ. I'm not a very good planner, but this is one of the highlights. So on the cross, Jesus says seven things. They're very famous, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And so each year we look at another saying. Um, we think that um, Jesus speaking on the cross has something to say to us and often illuminates the meaning of the cross for our lives and for our worship. And so tonight we'll be in John chapter 19. We've looked at the certain phrases Jesus said on the cross, like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Today you'll be with me in paradise, as he says to the thief next to him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Last year we, we looked at the saying, I thirst. And today we'll, we'll look at another saying here in John. If you'll um, read with me, we'll pick up in verse 16, in the middle of verse 16. They took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. John doesn't want you to miss the irony here. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. As we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, we'll notice that Mary Magdalene is a very, very devoted follower of Christ. She sits and cries by his tomb. She's the first one to recognize and realize the resurrection. She's been called the apostle to the apostles. Christianity has kind of a bad history in how we have treated women and how we have encouraged others to treat women. But from the very beginning, um, women get the highest place really that you can have in, in the history of the world and in the whole cosmos. A woman gives the message of the resurrection. So Mary Magdalene is there at the cross. Verse 26, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We looked at that statement last year, what it means to have a thirsty God. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the saying we'll look at tonight, it is finished. Maybe the, the most famous of all of Jesus' sayings from the cross. Uh, as he has struggled, as he has been beaten, as he has been put on the cross, has gasped for air, and then finally his life ends. And he, with one last breath, says, it is 
finished. Now, there were probably many people who said those words that day, it is finished. I can imagine Pontius Pilate thinking it's finished, another political troublemaker taken out of the equation. I can imagine the religious leader saying it's finished, another person who came with blasphemy is taken out of the equation. I can, I can hear the soldiers saying it's finished, another day at work, unpleasant but necessary. I can even hear Jesus' disciples saying it's finished. All that we had hoped for, all the, the trust and faith and belief that we had put in this man, and it all died right there on that cross. But Jesus' it is finished seems to be different from those. Those it is finished seem to have a kind of local perspective. Um, many read Jesus' it is finished, the saying here, it's one word actually in the Greek as a kind of last desperate cry of life, right? Um, much like you would say after experiencing something difficult. It's finished. He's been struggling. He's been holding on to life. And finally, when he knows the moment is here, he says, it's finished. And he bows his head and puts it down. However, there are other ways to read this, this Greek word. It could actually imply it is accomplished or it is completed, that what I have set out to do is now done. And I want to argue tonight that that is the more appropriate way to read Jesus' statement here on the cross. It is finished. It's not the kind of thing you say after a long struggle. It's the kind of thing you say after something that you have set out to do has been accomplished. I'm a teacher, and so part of being a teacher, what goes along with that is parent-teacher conferences, uh, which is always just a beautiful time between parents and teachers <laughs> celebrating each other, okay? You're such an amazing parent. Your student is so great. You're such an amazing teacher. The amount of homework you give is just right. It's just perfect for everybody. Um, and, and, and often, so you'll, you'll tell a friend, hey, I've got a parent-teacher meeting after school. And, and when you get out of the meeting, they'll say, how'd you go? And you'll say, well, it's finished. <laughs> right? It's done. We go through these painful experiences. How did it go? It's over. Right? But I don't think that's what Jesus means here as he's on the cross. Uh, to, 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 to really understand this, I think we need to go backwards in John's Gospel. Um, flip with me to John chapter 10. In John 10, Jesus, I think, gives us a perspective for which we should see his passion, his, his death. John chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then in verse 18, no one takes it from me. Here's Jesus' attitude towards his death. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He says, what's going to come and happen to me is going to be like a shepherd who might sacrifice his own life so that his sheep might live. 
He says, if, if you had a person there protecting the sheep who wasn't really invested, okay, in the sheep, who wasn't really had their heart all that in it, if they saw a wolf coming, they might run to the hills. But Jesus says, these are my sheep. The Father sent me to, to save them, to rescue them, to stand in the way of the wolf that comes after them. And he says, and make no mistake about it, this is a decision that I'm making. In John's gospel, Jesus is not a helpless sufferer. He's doing something on purpose. It, it reminds me, um, perhaps a silly illustration, uh, I'm a very competitive person, okay? Uh, if you uh, know me very well, you'll know that. Uh, uh, I've made people cry on mission trips, beating them in spades. I have broken windows, playing tennis with little girls. I have, I mean, it's, it's a real problem in my life, too, where I will not actually compete with people I don't know very well because I just can't control myself. And so I, I just know that about myself. If I don't want you to think that I'm just the biggest jerk in the world, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that with you. I'm not gonna compete with you. Um, I was working at a camp a, a handful of years ago, and, and there was this uh, little ice hockey table game. Okay, and what you got to know about this is I was really good at this game. Like hadn't lost all summer. Okay, and I had everything down. I had the flying V move. Okay, any Charlie Conway fans? Mighty Ducks? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I mean, I was the king of ice hockey, and then one day. After like eight weeks of straight victories and yelling at the kids and shoving it in their face and, and ripping my shirt off and saying, no one will beat me. This little boy with these little thin glasses on came and he beat me. <laughs> and you know what I said to him? I let you win. <laughs> now I lied. He actually... He actually beat me, but I, I said, hey, that was a conscious decision. I, I let you win. This, this, this seems to me what Jesus is saying here, right, to the, the powers to be who are crucifying him. He's saying this looks like a big victory for you, but, but if you look at it at a bigger perspective, it's cute how you think you're in charge of the situation. First Corinthians, Paul would actually say, if the powers knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified him. It was a setup. If they'd actually known what he would accomplish with his death, they wouldn't have tried to take him out that way. They would have perhaps tried something differently. So in John 10, Jesus gives us this picture of himself as not this helpless sufferer. Um, not someone who, who's kind of with giving in to the, the inevitable pain that he's experiencing, but instead going on a mission, having a purpose with his life. Flip with me to John 17. In John 17, you actually see the same word that Jesus utters on the cross. It appears twice in John once in John 17 and once in John 19. And it surprises people in John 17. It seems odd in John 17. We'll, we'll read John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, here it is. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. Past tense. And Christians read this and we're confused because Jesus hasn't died yet. And he hasn't resurrected. And if you were to ask any Christian, why did Jesus come? Part of their answer is going to be to die and to resurrect. Jesus here, though, well before the crucifixion and the resurrection, says, I've done the work that Jesus gave me to do, that the Father gave me to do. In the context, what he's talking about is the disciples that he's formed. 
John uh, in verse in chapter thirteen of his gospel kind of switches, and all of John thirteen on is centered around Jesus and his disciples. In John thirteen, he, he starts teaching them intimately. He washes their feet. He says, "This is how you should serve. This is how you should live." Uh, he prays for them. This high priestly prayer, this long prayer, covers chapters of our Bible, all for his disciples, including the ones who were to come, you and I. He focuses in on this this group of of kind of ragtag nobodies who he's traveled with for years, and as he gets to the end of his time with them, he says, "They're ready." I've accomplished the work I've come to do. In a lot of ways, we have distorted Christianity into to making it all about the afterlife. Um, but, but there's a large portion of uh, our faith that, that is, contains a, a very powerful emphasis on, on the here and the now, on living out our faith now, on revolutionizing the world now, and on this movement that's been started. We call it the kingdom of God that people are invited into. And what Jesus is saying in John 17 is, is I've, I've set up all the pieces. Now he knows they'll fall apart for a moment when he dies. But he says they're, they're all there. And these 12 little nobodies are going to flip the world upside down, which they end up doing in the book of Acts. Jesus says it's accomplished. I had, a, I had a purpose. I had a mission, which was to gather a group of people together who would be able to live my life, who would be able to follow me, who would be able to spread my message. And I've got them together, and this part of my work is accomplished. And then we go back to John 19. Then in John 19, Jesus on the cross receives the sour wine, and he says, it is finished. And I think what he means there is the same as what he meant in John 17. It's accomplished. I've accomplished my purpose. I've accomplished my task. You see, there was a wolf coming for the sheep. And part of Jesus' purpose was not just to gather a group of people, but also to protect that group of people, to save that group of people, to redeem that group of people, to release and free that group of people. Jesus came as a a king, and he came fighting against what looked like to be sin and death. The Jewish people at the time were expecting a king to come fight against Rome. Jesus, though, seemed to have a different enemy in sight. It was sin that was the real problem. It was death. We were trapped in these sins. We were under God's judgment. We were enslaved by the fear of death. They controlled everything that we did. And one of the things that Jesus had as part of his purpose was to go meet sin and death straight on. To absorb it so that his people wouldn't absorb it. To lay down his life like a good shepherd lays down his life. And as Jesus is on the cross, and he feels death approaching, and he feels the weight of the sins of humanity, he says, it is finished. I've accomplished what I've come to do. And now my people can be freed. They can have their sins forgiven. The cross reveals both at one and the same time the depth of God's love for us. That, that God in Christ, as Christians who believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, would enter into and experience all the evil that was reserved for you and I, so that we might not experience it. It reveals the depth of God's love for you. On Good Friday, today, part of Holy Week, when we, when we think about the cross, one of the things we want to remember is that the God we worshipped loves us so much that he would die for us. 
an astonishing truth. One that I think you could spend all of eternity trying to grasp. I know most of you in this room, and I love most of you in this room, but I probably wouldn't die for most of you in this room. A couple of you I might. (laughs) Might accidentally get in the way. But that the creator of the universe has the kind of nature and character, kind of desire in his heart to say that nothing will stop me from rescuing you. Even if it means I have to give up my own life. On the cross, Christians boldly say, God was crucified. It's a paradox. An oxymoron. How can life die? Jesus goes and reveals the love of God for us. He meets the evil that we were um, destined to meet. The cross also at the same time reveals the depth of our sin. Reveals the depth of how wrong the world had become. At one and the same time, the cross calls us to, to repent. Think about the ways that we've washed our hands of Jesus and his death. To think about the ways that, that we have abandoned his plan for our lives. To think about the ways that we have not lived up to what we know to be his will for us. It reveals the depth of our sin, the height of God's love. And for those who are God's people, now that Jesus has died, they're called to come and, and follow him, like the twelve apostles, as people who are forgiven, which means your sins, your sins aren't held against you anymore. In fact, not only are your sins not held against you, you don't have to sin anymore. One of the things we've talked about in the church, we'll talk about on Easter Sunday as well, is, is Jesus didn't just come to forgive us of materialism. He came to free us of materialism. Does that make sense? That we might walk out of sin and experience this new life. And because Jesus said, it is finished, that's a possibility for you. And because Jesus said, it is finished, death is no longer something Christians are afraid of. It's been taken care of. It's been met head on. And life overcame it. That's not the end of the world for Christians. We mourn, but we mourn like those who have hope, the hope of a resurrection. Jesus' work is finished, um, but his kingdom continues. The movement continues. The pieces are set in place. There's a group of people. There's a shepherd who's laid down his life for that group of people. And now you and I are invited to go, to experience his love, to experience his freedom, to follow him boldly into the future. And so this Good Friday, as you reflect on the cross, as you, as you reflect on, on what our Savior went through for us on our behalf, may you feel the call to follow him. May you feel the boldness to go wherever he would call you to go. And may you be transformed by the love that was poured out on the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we're given every year during Holy Week to remember the week that changed everything. To remember your son and his work on our behalf. To remember his accomplishments. Father, we thank you right now that that our sins are forgiven. 
that you have paid the debt in full, that you have completely washed away all of our iniquity. We, we thank you, Father, that you have freed us. We thank you that we're not enslaved to fate. We're not enslaved to, to patterns and habits and cycles of destruction but instead are called and able to participate in you, with you, in the work of new creation that you're working around us. I pray that you would open up our eyes continually to see how we can participate, how we can push remission forward, Father. Tonight I pray that that you would help each of us to see that, that your death on the cross was for your people, for the world, but also for for us individually. Sometimes it's easy for me to imagine that that Jesus loves us, but it's harder to imagine that he loves me. I pray, Father, as we come to the table, that that your love would would be poured out into our hearts and, and that we would be emboldened to follow you faithfully. We love you. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that all of God's people prayed. Amen.